If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open up with me to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. We're going to begin our time together by reading from one of, I think, the most iconic chapters in the Bible. If you have never read it or never heard it preached, I think today is a, a great day to be in God's house, a great day to open God's Word, and a great day to begin a relationship with this text. And, and I say that because there's some passages in the Bible that you kind of are aware of and that you know about. There's some passages in the Bible that you have a deep relationship with, right, that you read a lot, that you know a lot about, that you've really dug into, that you can quote from, uh, that you uh, have really stored and, and hidden in your heart. Uh, if Isaiah 6 isn't one of those, I would love for it to become one of those, and um, not based on my own efforts, but based on what I believe the Spirit of God has to say to us from this text, I, I hope and pray that it can be one you add to uh, your list or your bookmark and highlight uh, from this day forward. So let's follow along, uh, follow along with me, if you will. Isaiah chapter six, verse number one says, and the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, or I think better yet, it would be sang. They sang to each other. They sang across the heavens. The holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, it's Isaiah talking, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Uh, the title of our message today, as you can read, is An Inescapable Calling. Maybe that's a little bit on the nose to talk about a church, but most of you know what you signed up for today. And if you didn't, we'll get you up to speed uh, pretty quick without feeling like you're having a tooth pulled or anything that would be uncomfortable. I don't think it'll be that uncomfortable. It might be a little bit, but I don't think it'll be near as bad as that. Uh, but I want to start our time today by asking you a simple question. Have you ever been dealt with or have you ever had or have you ever felt what you would describe as an inescapable calling? Now, calling is a word that can be taken in different directions. You could substitute calling with maybe a couple different words. Uh, maybe a, a word that would be appropriate would be obligation, which maybe that kind of has a negative or kind of has a, a, you know, kind of a laborious uh, context to it. You know, oh, I'm obligated to do something whether I wanted to or not. I've got to or I'm obligated to. Now, that can be a, a sort of calling. You have an obligation. You were called to do something. You were called upon and expected to do something. And, and in some ways, you can't really escape those in some parts of your life. But also callings can be understood as opportunities, something that you willingly and joyfully and, and, and sign up for because you see something that you feel drawn to, you feel connected to, you feel like you're 
you're, you're needed there and, and you want to be involved in that. So I think you can take calling different ways. Now those words may seem opposite of each other, but they kind of are, are two sides of the same coin and they, they have that shared origin in calling or, or the inspiration by, behind it. Now we deal with callings all over our lives uh, on a very simple level and on a very complex level. We deal with callings all throughout our lives as children, as adults, personally, professionally, everywhere in between. We all uh, have different levels and different degrees and, and different kinds of callings. Now maybe you've come to understand calling in a very one-sided way, but I think we'll find that there are different kinds, different types of callings. Some originate from someone else, and some uh, are pressed on us by someone else that are very powerful and very influential. Uh, Some callings are inspired by things outside of us, but some callings come from within us, or they come from our hearts. They come from our souls, that something is planted in us, and it just kind of bubbles up to something that we can't get away from. Uh, So there's different kinds of callings. Sometimes we're called upon and sometimes we're called to. And and those seem very granularly different, but but there is a difference that sometimes I ask you to do something or someone asks you to do something. And sometimes you feel like you're called to do something. And maybe it was something somebody said or something that you read or something that something inspired you, but it kind of comes from within, but callings come from different places. Sometimes they come outside, sometimes they come from the inside. I think you can see the difference. Both are callings, but they come from slightly different places. They pull on the same emotional strings though, and they leave us with an inescapable decision to make. Now, to be more specific with our original question, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been called upon by somebody Uh, Maybe it was their idea. Maybe you agreed with it. Maybe you didn't agree with it. But have you ever been asked to or expected to or given an obligation to do something? Have you ever had a calling hung over you? You were expected to fulfill it, whether you signed up for it or not. Have you ever been called upon by somebody, something to fulfill a certain task. And I think all of us would agree, hey, I've been called upon. We've all been called upon in, in, in different ways. Now we can go into sorts of, all sorts of directions with this, um, from family obligations to expectations. Um, maybe it was up to you to carry on the family dream and, and or step into a crucial uh, place in time and someone called you and you didn't have to answer, but you sort of couldn't get away from it. Uh, and the idea kind of began to really hang over you and people begin to continue to encourage you. And, and, and family, like they should be, family can be relentless, right? Uh, we say no, but sometimes the whole family won't accept no for an answer. Uh, and the whole family comes out in force from grandparents to distant relatives. And they all show up and say, hey, this is your time. This is your calling. This is what you must do for us and for each of us. So there's also callings that come from our citizenship. And we, we as Americans know this very well. And we've read a lot of stories about this. And we're thankful for these sorts of callings. Uh, there's callings of national duty, duty that uh, definitely we can't escape. Uh, Maybe some wiggle room there for some. But, you know, if, if the nation calls on you in a certain way, you've got to step up and, and fulfill it. Now, some of our country's finest moments were carried out by those who were called upon to defend and fight for our freedom. They were pulled out of society at, at very young ages and or as young adults 
adults starting their families, and yet they were called into the line of duty to go and fight uh, for for our freedom and, and to be able to continue what we believe in. Now, all the, also there's there's lighter examples of, of national duty. Uh, you get a summons in the mail every once in a while that says, "Hey, you've got to show up at your local courthouse, uh, and you've got to help sort through some legal matters, and, and you might get out of it once or twice, but eventually uh, you are called upon as an American citizen to fulfill that line uh, of duty. We're called upon to do something regardless of our feelings or our thoughts about it. It it, it was hard for us to escape those kinds of obligations. But even harder to escape are the callings that come from within. Or maybe better said, they're planted within us and they bloom and they bud and they leave us with a conviction. And y'all know what I'm talking about. They leave us with a sense of obligation. They leave us with a burden of alt. They leave us with a weight of must. That leads me to another question. Have you ever felt called to something? And again, this is different than being called upon. I might call upon you to help do something. You might call upon me to help do something or to serve some way or, or, or to be uh, uh, you know, involved in something, but I don't have to do it. And I might, you know, you might give me, you know, down the road if I don't do it, but I don't have to do it. But when it comes from within, or when it comes from that inspiration that we all know and we all have felt before, you feel like you got to do something with that kind of calling. Now, the difference here is that word felt, right? Uh, maybe it's more than a feeling to you. It's a burden. It's a, it's a weight. It's a conviction. Uh, now, these, are, these may be inspired by outside sources and forces. And ultimately, these are so powerful and so influential, they take root in our guts, in our hearts, and we can't get away from them. You feel these callings when you look into the eyes of those that you love. When you look into your husband's or wives or your children or your parents or your siblings' eyes, you, you feel something that you just don't feel when you look at a stranger, right? You feel something when you look in their eyes and you know that whatever it takes to take care of them and to do for them as you, would, as you want to and as they would do for you, that you will do whatever is required of you if that's what it takes. Now, maybe you felt these uh, kinds of callings in times of turmoil in our community or even in our country and something wells up within you that you must go beyond what is required as a member, as a citizen, and you sign up to do more. Someone maybe gives a speech that inspires you, but in the end, something within you, a fire that was lit would not stop burning until you did something. So there's a difference between being called upon and being called to, right? But it still comes down to this inescapable sense of calling. So again, I ask you, have you ever felt a calling like that before? Does a calling like that drive you, move you, pull you back when you're tempted to go off the rails, settle you down when you're overcome with panic and uncertainty? Are you called to do something? Do you feel that kind of calling? Now, if you haven't been here, we just spent a whole month uh, in a series about our lives being borrowed from God. Our lives are on loan from God. How we came from God, we're gonna return to God. We're gonna give an account to God for what we did with his, uh, his life that he gave us, his gift that he gave us. It was borrowed from him. It belongs to him. We will give an account for how we spent our lives for his glory and for his kingdom. And as a pastor, as a pastor, and you probably heard this in my, in my language and, and you hear this a lot uh, as, as anybody that communicates God's word. As a pastor, there's a fine line between telling the people of God and communicating the word of God in a way that says, you must do this, you have to do this. 
That no pastor wants to be someone that is known and nobody who communicates God's word wants to be known as somebody who says you've got to or you have to. The, the, the ministry of the gospel is to impart to everyone that hears a sense of calling that I can't explain, that you can't explain, but it's something that God does in our hearts. And the reason why the way it's communicated is so important is because there's a difference in us trying to do something and God inspiring us to do something. And it's so crucial because this is really core to what Christianity is and what Christianity is at its heart. Christianity, by its very nature, is a covenant of grace, that it's a gift from God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we work for. Come on, we know this. Christianity is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. We don't work for it. We don't pay for it. We don't deserve it, right? It is the grace of God that saves us. We are not saved by what we do, how good we do it, how bad we may have done it. We are saved by what Jesus has done. May you never mishear me. No matter what I may preach on on any given Sunday about what Christians should do or must do, may it be anchored in our hearts. May we be anchored by this truth. Christianity is a covenant of grace. God has made a promise to you. You are not saved by what you do. You are saved by what Jesus has done. Not might do what he has done. It's faith in him. Not faith in ourselves or faith in what we do or the merit of what we do. If the Bible does not mind telling us, as saved people, what we should do and what we ought to do. And sometimes we get a little confused when we see things like that. Because if it's about grace and it's about a gift, then what's with all the shoulds and the must and the have tos and the ought tos? But you know what that tells me? And this, this is so incredible as God began to kind of show it to me preparing for this. God is very confident in his grace's ability and power to not only save, but sanctify and set us apart. You know why God can say it's a gift, but you must? Because God is so confident in his grace's ability to do what his grace can only do. You see, religion gets a little worried. Oh, well, we better put some tape. We better, we better put some thou shalt and thou shalt nots on this because if you just give people that kind of freedom, you don't know what they might do. But God says, hey, hey, I know who I am. I know you are doubtful of your own ability. You're worried because you are, you know, we're all weak, fragile creatures. We want to control people. God says, I know what I'm doing. I'm confident in my grace's ability to not only save people, but sanctify, as in get in our heart and make a difference. That's why God can say, it is finished. That's why God can say, his word can say, salvation is free, but also discipleship demands more. And and for some of us, that might be a little bit difficult to balance, but God is confident enough to say, salvation is free, it costs you nothing. But following Jesus demands more of us. Discipleship demands more. The grace that saves us, that atones of our sins, is also a transformative power that makes a difference. That's why the best preachers, not people like me, but Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John, they never turned people upside down, shaking them until they did something. They never had to beat it over the head of people. 
they preached the grace of God. They gave people the assurance of salvation, but they also planted an inescapable calling in every hearer's hearts. And that same thing happens to you and me when God's grace gets a hold of us. It gives us assurance. Salvation is free. It costs us nothing. Jesus paid it all. But there's something in us that says, all to him I owe. And it's inescapable. That's what makes the Bible so remarkable. And the accounts of how God worked in people's lives It's so powerful. Though Jesus and his disciples never preached a religion of legalism and laws, they always preached grace and faith, grace and faith. All of them are on the record proclaiming their own conviction, though, to obey God. Even though they believed it was by grace, through faith, by grace, through faith, you hear these men that preached, they always testified there was something in them that said, obedience is not an option. I want to show you some examples from Jesus, Peter, and Paul as they faced definite loss, as they faced death, as they were in circumstances and scenarios that were going to cost them. Listen to how they were set on obeying God, even if it meant suffering for it. Luke 13, verse 33, this is Jesus. Nevertheless, I must Go on my way today and tomorrow and the day after, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish. So, hey, Jesus, where are you going? I've got to get to Jerusalem. Why you got to get there? Because I'm going to die there. Well, if you're going to die there, don't, don't we need to go the other way? I mean, I must, we must, let's go the other way. They even tried Jesus, let's go the other way. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go anywhere, Jesus. You're Jesus. You can do whatever you want to do. He says, oh, y'all don't understand. I must Little Greek word, D-E-I, day. It's a Greek word that means it is necessary that I do this. Peter must have been taking notes because Peter and the disciples, when they are being punished for their faith, when they're being persecuted for their faith and they're told, never preach in Jesus' name or about Jesus' resurrection ever again. Peter says to the courts, we must Obey God rather than men. It's going to cost you, Peter. They were beaten within an inch of their life. They bared the scars until the day they died. They limped out of the courtroom that day. But Peter said, as his master said, we must. You don't have to, Peter. You're Peter. You don't have to do anything. He says, y'all don't understand, do you? I must. The Apostle Paul when he was called to go to Jerusalem to continue the ministry. People pulled at his clothes and begged him, don't go, Paul. I've seen a vision. You're going to suffer. He said, of course I'm going to suffer. I've seen that vision too. Don't worry about me. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And the same Greek word behind constrained is that Greek word that we translate must. I'm going constrained, compelled with a sense of must, a sense of obligation, not knowing what will happen to me, except the Spirit has told me I'm going to be in prison and there's going to be some afflictions. Come on, Paul, you've planted dozens of churches. You don't have to do this. He says, you don't understand, do you? I've got a calling that I cannot escape. All three confessed that their obedience was not a matter of have to, but a matter of want to. A want to that compelled them, even when there was plenty of reasons not to. You follow me there? 
They had an inescapable calling. That's the only other way you can chalk this up. They never once say, God says, if I don't, I'm done. God says, if I don't do this, he's cutting me off. They never once said that because that wasn't true. They never once said, thou shalt or it's bad news or, or else. They never said that because that wasn't the case. They said, we must. There's a difference. They had an inescapable calling, as does any and every follower of Jesus, as you do. You may not know it, but you have this same inescapable calling. Every child of God has the same calling over them. His word tells us what we should do and why we should do it, but his spirit within us does not allow us to ever be content or satisfied until we do it. Now, there may be ways to get out from under it or get away from it or tune it out and tone it out, tone it down, but you'll never be able to escape it. Our salvation is not determined by if we do it, but our discipleship will be measured by if we did it. Ultimately, the message to every Christian when it comes to what God has called us to do can be summarized like this. We should, but we don't have to, but we should want to. And here's the good news. We can want to. And I think a lot of us are right there. Well, Justin, I'm just going to be honest because God knows and watched it lie in church. I don't really want to. And it's okay to say that. I mean, hey, just be real. You know, I, I'm glad it's by grace because, hey, I don't know if I couldn't make it. And you couldn't make it on your own. I couldn't make it on my own. If it was up to my works and my obedience, as squeaky clean as I might look, I would be out before there was ever a minute of time passing. As religious as we might can be, none of us would make it a day if it was up to our obedience. None of us. So thank God it's by grace, and it always will be. But there's something in you that says, I can't get away from this calling. And when we're in church, we kind of wiggle around because we know we should want to, but we just don't always want to. Sometimes we want to, but sometimes we don't want to. Don't want to. Sometimes we really try not to want to, and we try to tune that conscious out. Now, I can't, here's the bad news. Really, it's good news, but I, I can't create this want to in you. I can't. No, no preacher, as charismatic as they are, as bold as they are, as smart as they are, no preacher or no church service you ever attend is going to give you this want to. But there's a God who I am confident in who can. Maybe the passage in the Bible that God wants every one of us to relate to the most and be realized as our own individual experience is Isaiah 6. Off the top of the text, it seems like Isaiah just shows up one day to the temple and sees something really awesome and then signs up to serve God. It seems like he just volunteers to serve God. But a deeper look at the text reveals he was called and moved and compelled to serve. The voice over him may have been seems like an option, but the spirit inside him made it very clear what his next step had to be. And the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit of God from the throne of Almighty God moves and dwells in every one of us that calls Jesus Lord. And he calls us today to serve like Isaiah served. Of course, like Jesus, like Peter, like Paul served. But let's be honest, some of us don't have an awareness of this calling. We're just not in touch with what God wants to do in our lives, with the much more that God says he can do. What I love about Isaiah 6 is that it gives us a window into the life of this man, and it allows us to see the gap 
between us and him, between us and someone we revere in the Bible as a hero of faith. But that gap isn't as far as we might think it would be. That if we don't feel this is an inescapable calling, if we don't feel the same gravitational pull like it seems like Isaiah had, that the good news is this, that God is constantly working to draw us in and instill us and inspire us toward a more, more fulfilled walk with him. And Isaiah 6 is meant to show us that even Isaiah wasn't in tune with and in step with this calling for, many, for much of his time as a believer or for his early years as a believer. Isaiah 6 is about how one faithful visit to the temple revolutionized his faith. He went there for comfort. He went there for consolation, but he walked out with a calling. So there's, there's some things that I want to bring to you off the surface of this text as we wrap up that I think correlate to your own experience in this world today. And I want to break them down one by one. Verse 1, right off the bat, we see that Isaiah tells us that he went to the temple right after the king died. Now, it may seem like another Sunday for us, another trip to church, but Isaiah is communicating something very particular and important here. He tells us the most important visit to the temple took place, the most transformational visit to the temple took place right after King Uzziah died. Now, if you hear this, oh, in the year that King Uzziah died, that sounds like, hey, this is going to be something sad or something unfortunate or something that's not going to be uplifting. So he went to the temple because King Uzziah's death really shook the foundation of Israel. King Uzziah had been a rock for Israel for over 50 years. Now let me try to bring that into perspective for you. No king ever served for that long. If you knew anything, if you know anything about history or even modern politics, nobody reigns for 50 years unless they're a dictator, and that's never good news. But nobody ever reigns for 50 years because that's just not how life works, right? Most countries, eight is the most you get, but even across monarchies and kingdoms, 20 years was pushing it. Now, if the king was a lousy tyrant, that would be terrifying. But if the king was everything you ever want a leader to be, 50 years sounds like a great idea. And that's what was the thing about King Uzziah. He was the best thing that Israel could ever have asked for, especially in light of some of the previous division they'd faced. Chronicles tells us Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, his mother's name was Jechaliah, and that's just saying, hey, she, was a, she raised a good son. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper, and boy, prosper is, is not even a big enough word. Uh, Israel was full of prosperity and peace, growth and gain from the least to greatest. Everybody loved Uzziah, and Uzziah was good to everybody. After 50 years, he was still relatively young and healthy man, had many more years hopefully in front of him. The nation expected more decades of peace and prosperity. But something that we just don't really understand happened in Uzziah's heart that really isn't that uncommon when you think about it. Uzziah became proud in his older years. He became careless. He became less devoted to God. And ultimately, he was struck down in his pride. He got struck with leprosy and died very quickly. And the news took the nation and, 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 and shook the nation as it spread. This wasn't the way King Uzziah was meant to go out. Everyone was taken aback and devastated. It shook their confidence in 
in, in, in the whole royal family and also in God. The kingdom was in disarray. It was a bad look for the nation. And, and people were wondering how this embarrassment was going to settle on the nation. So Isaiah, while he enjoyed serving God during the years of Isaiah, Isaiah is telling us something here. If we read between the lines. Isaiah had never had to rely on God really. Because he had King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was an awesome king. And everybody under King Uzziah's reign had a good life. But when Uzziah died, everybody was worried. They had no troubles, but suddenly with his death, everyone was a little concerned about their future. Isaiah wasn't so bullish about his confidence in God's plan because he didn't have a king to point to as proof. Suddenly, it became more about faith than it had ever been. He wasn't sure if he was really comfortable with that. And I think we can relate, can't we? When, when your party in choi of choice is leading, when the economy is booming, when your family life is smooth sailing, when your health is great, we have, we have faith, but we don't need faith. We don't really exercise our faith. We rely on God, but not really. We attend church. We miss a few weeks here and there. It's not like anything bad happens. Life's good. We really only attend because we want to maintain that certain image. We just kind of go through the motions. But let something bad happen. It shakes our faith. Suddenly we need the Lord a whole lot more than we thought we did. And we seek him a whole lot more intentionally than we did before. And in times like these, God gets our attention more easily. And maybe that's why he lets things like this happen. Our hearts are more sensitive. If not for our afflictions, we would definitely go astray, as David said. And, and listen, this is a little bit insight on how my mind works and how my heart works. This is why you'll never hear me praising a worldly leader or going on and on about how good the economy is and how prosperous things are and how peaceful things are because some, certain things are happening because God forbid we ever shift our faith from God to a man. You know why I'm saying that? Because Isaiah shifted his faith. Israel shifted his faith. You don't think we will do the same? Oh, definitely we do the same. And here's the thing, when we shift our faith to someone unreliable, flimsy, and unsuitable for that kind of attention, we make ourselves very vulnerable. And here's a warning, you, can quote, you don't have to listen to anything else I say, but I think this is good to remember. If we live by the winds of this world, we'll die by the losses of this world. If you get yourself super celebratory because of something that good happens in this world apart from God, then you better watch out when something bad happens because it'll bring you down. For, some, for those same reasons, I don't panic when bad things are happening or trouble happens. I'm not going to use my platform to cry that the sky is falling, yes, lest you doubt that God is as good as he's ever been. It's because the church has been this sensitive and worldly that we have moments like Isaiah. When our King Uzziah falls or fails, when the opposite of King Uzziah seizes power, we lose heart. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've come to church and you're downcast because earthly circumstances, whether it's something nationally or personal or private in your family, our services are about leading us into lifting our eyes up and seeing that no matter how, what we're going through, high and lifted up is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, listen to this. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on the throne. Do you see what he's confessing there? 
Do you see what he says down in verse 5? My eyes have seen the king. I thought my life was over because the little king died, but I went to the house of God and I saw there's nothing to worry about. The king, the Lord of hosts, is in control. And shame on me for thinking otherwise. Isaiah comes into the house. He lifts his eyes up and Whatever went on at this service, he went from th- seeing people to seeing what was going on in heaven. He went to the temple, but he's seeing the image, a vision of heaven, clearly. Because there's not angels and God's not literally in the temple. He's in heaven. And Isaiah is seeing things as they are in heaven because his heart is pouring out before God. But you know what we don't hear Isaiah do? Isaiah doesn't describe the songs they sing, the men, that the men sing. He doesn't describe the message that some man gave. He describes what God showed him through those things. The people of God gathered to seek his face. They had lost faith completely in the world, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Maybe our problem isn't that the songs aren't good enough or the services aren't perfect enough. Maybe we're still coming in with one foot out the door with faith still in the world. Isaiah came in with his eyes completely on heaven, and that's what his heart needed to get a view of what was going on in heaven, which was much better than what he saw on earth. You know the secret to a transformative church and a church service? It's God's word. It's not the style or the, or, or the, the atmosphere. It's not the messenger. It's the word of God that's the bedrock that gets our attention off of this falling planet and up to our glorious heaven above. We don't hear anything about man-centric elements of this service. We hear that men and women uh, that were involved got out of the way and put God on the spotlight. And that's what we always strive to do here at Risen Church. We will always help lift your eyes up to be totally on the Lord. And that's what Isaiah heard. He heard the angels singing, God is holy. Yeah, the world's falling apart, but God is perfect. God is trustworthy and his glory is all around us. Yeah, it looks bad, but look a little deeper and look a little harder because you can see his goodness all around you. His purpose is all around you and you have an opportunity to serve him in spite of what you may be seeing or feeling. Isaiah admits in verse 5, it wasn't always his perspective. He says, I'm undone. He came in with a downcast spirit. He came in with the wrong attitude, but he left with a new perspective. You see his confession. He came in sulking over losing a really good king, but all the while he had a sovereign God king. And let me ask you, how many of us are miss, have missed this? How many of us are distracted by the highs of this world or deceived by the lows of this world? Isaiah realized that he's been running for the wrong team. He's been chasing for the wrong winds. He's been allowing losses that should not affect him, knock him down. And because the temple of God put on display the true message of the gospel, that there is a good God who can save us, who can forgive us of our sins, who can cleanse us of whatever is in between us and God, Isaiah got a picture And Isaiah received a calling that changed his life. He, God put hooks in Isaiah that were inescapable from this day forward. Isaiah, tired of victories that didn't last, losses that shouldn't get him that down, was more than ready to see the world through God's eyes and chase after the true and greater prize. Church, it's my prayer that every one of our gatherings can have this effect on us. 
that we might would respond to the voice of God that is over us today. Who will go for me into this world and tell the world that there is good news, that there is a better life to live and there is a calling over all of us. Who will feel this calling and who will rise up and say, here I am, send me. There is an opportunity each and every week, every single Sunday for you and I to gather in places like this and hear the, the, the gospel we proclaim and see the glory of God, be encouraged by the power of God and be reminded that we should not give up so easily, be reminded that we should not be so distracted and so deceived and make our, com our commitment and our vow before God and everyone else that we have seen the bigger picture and our hearts have been in tune and in sync with the God of heaven and the kingdom of of God that rules and reigns and we make that declaration out loud every single time here I am send me to a world that needs to hear this the temple establishment needed to continually and clearly point to the Lord that he was high and lifted up and more than ever the church is capable and the church is responsible to equip and entice God's people to serve and I say this to all of you we are sent to minister to our world. We are sent into our world just like Isaiah was. When we hear people putting their hope in the wrong things, we can be a light that says, hey, there's a better way. When we hear people putting, being downcast because of things that should not be so downtrodden or make them so downtrodden, we can lift our voices up and say, have you not heard of the good news? You and I have an opportunity every single day to be a minister and we must step into this ministry. And Ephesians gives this mandate to people like me. That our job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To build up the body of Christ until we all attain this unity. So as a pastor, I want to do a better job at not only bringing a word of conviction to us all, but helping you all connect the dots. And whether you're a member here or a visitor here, I think this is important for you to hear because if this isn't something you get involved with at our church, you should and you really must find a local church where you take that next step as God is sending you. My burden, my passion is that we might would see our inescapable callings be met with an irresistible opportunity. I'm confident that the Spirit of God is stirring everyone here today to be more involved and be sent for God's kingdom as we, as we approach, believe it or not, a brand new year, just a few weeks away from 2023. So we're launching a campaign that we're going to run through the end of the year that I'm going to remind you about again and again and again called Here I Am, Send Me, for and in 2023. I think it's easy enough to remember. There's no better opportunity than right in front of you. Did you know, and maybe you didn't, studies show that only four out of 10 church attendees ever get involved in serving in any capacity, 40%. And studies show this is true across the boards. The bigger church myth is the reason why many never get involved. Oh, well, if our church was bigger, I would, or if I was at a bigger church, I would. But studies show that whether the church has 20 people, 200 people, 2,000 people, 40% are involved across the boards. Which tells us this, the problem isn't the churches aren't doing their job, is that most of us are not fostering and fanning the spark that is being planted on a weekly basis. Church, there's no reason why that statistic should not be 80 to 90%. I know that it's never going to be 100, but come on. There's room for everyone to serve and there's room for everyone to get involved. There's a reason for everyone. There's room and there's reason for everyone to serve because the reality is that everyone has been sent. 
We must respond like Isaiah did. If our faith has been elsewhere, our investment distracted by victories or losses, today we must say, here I am, send me. We must surrender and volunteer and embrace this inescapable calling over us and the irresistible opportunities in front of us. We want to give everyone an opportunity to plug in and pour out for the kingdom of God. But we as God's people, we must have an open heart, an open mind, and open, open arms and open hands. On the way out today, you'll receive a handout that details all the ways that you can serve our church in the years to come. Or you can go to risenchurchnc.org serve and you can find this document and a form you can fill out that emails me directly. Here's what I want you to do. This isn't how we normally end our services, but instead of leaving it up to you in vagaries and, oh, well, maybe you can do this, maybe you can do that, I, I want to help you. I want to make it easy for you. I want you to take this handout, and I want you to pray over it. I don't want you, and I mean, I don't, I'm not being nice, I don't want anybody to come to me and say, Justin, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Because that tells me you really don't want to do anything. You're just trying to be nice. I want you to say, I'm going to pray over this. I'm going to ask God, how can I get involved and serve? How can I begin to build something from the ground up? I want you to pray over it. Maybe you've got two or three things that you might would really like to do. We'll put it in order. One, two, three, what you would feel led to do. But don't, I don't, this isn't something you're going to turn in next week or next month. You've got several weeks. Pray over this. And I believe God is going to give you a clear vision about how you can make a difference. On the flyer, you'll see opportunities to serve the church and ways to take care of what we do here, to be involved, to help build up what we do here from Bible studies to events to children's ministry to helping with our facilities. That's not always glamorous, but sometimes the laborious and counterproductive things or seemingly counterproductive things are what are callings that are as inescapable as anything else. You also see opportunities to help start up and be stewards over our endeavors to build teams that pay attention to the needs in our community, our country, and all over the world with the different missions that go on through our association. This requires we have open eyes and open ears. This can be a very fulfilling thing if we allow it to be an all-consuming thing. So I ask you to take this, pray over it, and read Isaiah 6 and be ready to be called and sent and take that bigger and bolder step. Regardless, if you think, well, I don't, you know, Justin, you don't, I'm just not at a place right now. Here's, here's what I call the irreducible minimum. The irreducible minimum of our kingdom participation is that we all commit to pray, give, and love as a part of our church. Not separate, but as a part of the church. This is the baseline. This is the irreducible minimum of what it means to activate your faith Beginning today, you can, go to our, you can go to our website or you can take one of these forms, pray over it, that it's not just a matter of I am willing, but it's a matter of I am ready. Here I am. Send me. There's a difference between ready, willingness and readiness. Readiness says it's time to go. Over the next few months, we'll check in on this. And today, we're, today is about preparing our hearts, taking that first step in surrendering and volunteering, giving our hearts to God and saying to him, give me that inescapable calling. Maybe you don't even have a relationship with Jesus and you want to start that today. Hit the ground running that not only do you put your faith in him, but you want to serve him 
You see that you can be forgiven of your sins. You can rededicate your life to him today. All of us, though, are called to come and prepare to be sent by him and serve him because whether this gets, whether I get your attention or not, whether somebody else gets your attention or not, this calling will forever be inescapable over every child of God. And once you say yes, you'll see the opportunity that has always been inescapable and always been irresistible. Today, we take our first steps toward realizing that goal. We say to God, here is my heart. Take it and seal it so that we might can say to him, here I am. Send me. Let me pray for you. Come into your house today to, to see that Isaiah's experience can be our experience. Lord, I pray you would stir our hearts up like you did Isaiah. Isaiah admitted that he had been putting faith in the wrong places and the wrong people. And he came and got a glimpse of you and a glimpse of heaven and a glimpse of your glory. And he said, that is what I want. And that's what I want to be a part of. And he gave his life. He committed his whole life to being on your team, to chasing victories for your kingdom. Lord, I pray today that we've all been reminded of how good you are to us and how confident we can be in your plan how we don't have to be shaken up or discouraged by what the world around us looks like, but we can actually be bold and determined more than ever to go to our world and share with them the Jesus that has saved us. Lord, I pray you would lay everybody, lay a burden on everyone's heart today, that we might would come to you and lay our lives down before you and say, here I am, send me, but show us specifically, show us clearly the pathway you've called us to follow you in because there's a difference for us all to make there's a kingdom we've all been invited into and a calling that is inescapable over us all. We ask this in Jesus' name.